Turn your Bibles, if you would, to the second chapter of Colossians. I wanted to talk to you uh, this morning on, and really putting it into a just a sentence or maybe a title. I would, I would say the vanity of speculation. I think sometimes when we speculate, we can get into danger, uh, dangerous ground. We can get into a dangerous territory. Uh, sometimes we have a tendency to think that we know what we're talking about when we really don't. Sometimes we think we have it together when, when we really don't. And so I think that, that humility is absolutely essential when it comes to the understanding of what is going on in our culture today. I, I think really if we were to think about um, the floodgate, if you would, of philosophies that are being presented uh, everywhere in 2021. It's amazing to see all the nations gather together to the Olympics, and I'm reminded of the rock of ages that is going to be hewed out of the mountain that will crush the nations. And the only kingdom that will last is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his kingdom will shine. And we know that we can rest in that, and with all of the pomp and all of the uh, the show that's going on, we can put our faith and our trust, I know, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to pick out the verse here, if I can, out of the second chapter of Colossians, and that's verse number eight, and just pick out a word from there to begin, and as far as my introduction, uh, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Now, growing up, I heard this verse and growing up and being taught many times uh, to be careful of philosophy. But I've always thought that it said vain philosophy. Uh, so be careful for uh, empty philosophy or, or uh, you know, deceitful philosophy. But what the Bible's actually saying here in the admonition, the word beware, uh, there are two things underneath the canopy of beware. The first one is philosophy. And the second thing is vain to see. So what is philosophy? Is philosophy a good thing? Um, there are people that would actually consider themselves the philosopher. Um, if you don't think that you are in a, philo- a philosopher or don't have any in the church, come to the campfire uh, thing on Thursday night. We'll sit down as philosophers and we will talk about things that are going on and we will talk about solutions. But the word philosophy is an interesting word. It really comes from the Greek word, um, first of all, philos, or we would say phileo, love. And again, it would come, the second word would be, would be sophia. And so you would have these two words come together, uh, phileos and sophia, uh, love for wisdom. And so you think, well, there's nothing really wrong with that word philosophy then, if that's, if that's what it's talking about. But philosophy can be turned into really an attitude toward what is going on around you. Uh, if you're not careful, you would actually have the wrong philosophy or the wrong thinking. And so when a person goes through some crisis some difficulty in their life, when they experience a difficulty, they take that experience a certain way because of the way that they think about it, because of perhaps the philosophy in which they have. They look at it as philosophical rather than spiritual. 
they see the problem as maybe a, a broad perspective, if you would, or, or as part of a, a small scheme rather than a larger picture. And so sometimes it's tunneled into a small view of things. And so what's involved with philosophy, I really believe, is uh, knowledge. If you think about knowledge, it's not a bad thing. But knowledge does puff up. But knowledge does not lead, really, uh, by itself to understanding. And I, and I really believe that philosophy doesn't really lead to understanding. I think philosophy comes out, a lot of times, I think, out of speculation or out of doubt. When someone doesn't know for sure, that doesn't really have a real clue on something, they make their own philosophy or they come up with their own philosophy. And so um, I, was, I was reading the other day concerning this whole issue, and someone had said that philosophy is an attempt to gain a view of the whole. I thought that's pretty interesting. I years ago heard of the Gestalt theory on how certain people would look at things completely as a whole rather than as just partly. But philosophy defined from a Christian perspective is a little bit different than maybe the word philosophy in, in the world. And I think when we're talking about the word philosophy, um, we could define it uh, as a comprehensive approach to life, which includes uh, your philosophy or maybe perhaps your religion, if you use that term. I don't like to use the word religion. Because I really believe that religion cannot save you. Only Jesus can. I, I believe that you're, you're looking for a relationship with Jesus, not a system of rules or regulations. You're looking for a personal touch from the God of heaven, and he will give that to you if you have a personal relationship with him. And as I was reading, I had to read some of my notes and I want to read them to you. Someone went on to say that philosophy is defined as a study of the fundamental principles of a particular branch of knowledge. So really, our study, uh, as we study and as we think and as we read, uh, we grow into our philosophy in life. And uh, as you know, that there are all kinds of theories going on today. We have a tendency to, uh, to uh, hear all kinds of of uh, theories like, what, what do they have now? It's called the critical race theory that is out there. And there's all kinds of theories concerning uh, evolution. If you look about uh, some of the theories that have come out of, of humanistic thinking that have come into the schools and have come into our society and our culture, I'm telling you folks, there is a great need today to understand that there is a We've got to put a stop to this floodgate of, of, of philosophy. We've got to get back to the scriptures. Yes. We have to get back to what God said. We've got to get back to say, he said it, I believe it, that settles it. I think when we're dealing with speculation, we're dealing with our own thoughts and our own thinking. And I think when we're talking about philosophy and dealing with our own thoughts, we're dealing with uncertainties. And I want to deal with something that is for certain. Uh, I think if we were to look at the humanistic perspective, uh, maybe the humanistic manifesto, if you would, that has come out and given us 
all kinds of fits and problems all the way back in the, in the late 50s, really, and in the 60s and 70s, and now look what we have. What a mess that we have in our culture today, in our society, in this great land we call America, where we stood upon what is right and what is true and what is wholesome, where we had real and honest and humble neighbors and Now we have people that are going to and fro, and I don't want to just pick out the negative, nor do I want to discourage you. I want to encourage you for a moment, but I'm going to dip into some of the humanistic thinking, if I can, uh, for just a moment. Um, There was a quotation that was in what we call the the Humanist Magazine. And I don't know if you've ever seen the Humanist Magazine. I never have. But in there, there was a quote, and I want to read it to you. This is the quote. It says, I am convinced that the battle for humankind's future, the mind, must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the prostatalizers of a new faith. A religion of Humanity that recognizes and respects the spark of what theologians call divinity in every human being, these teachers must embody the same selfless dedication as most rabid fundamentalist preachers, for they will be ministers of another sort utilizing the classroom instead of a pulpit to convey humanist values in whatever subject they teach, regardless of the education level. Interesting what they were saying, if we, if we look at their desire and, and what they're trying to convey. It goes on to say it doesn't matter their education level, preschool, daycare, or large university. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new, the rotting corpse of Christianity, together with all its adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism, repleasant. I even went over this word with my wife a couple times this morning. I'll get it. Nope. Splendent. Resplendent. That's what got me was the prefix. Resplendent. In its promise of a world in which is never realized Christian ideal or love love thy neighbor will finally be achieved in humanism. It will undoubtedly be long... uh, Adorious, painful struggle replete with much sorrow and many tears, but humanism will emerge triumphant. It must, if a family of humankind is to survive. Interesting when you're thinking about the humanistic mindset of those that are teaching your children in the public school. They are saying that Christianity is some old rotten thing and that they have new ideas and they have the new way that they can run our culture and raise our families. Do you think there is a need for God in our homes today? Like never before. 
And I want you to don't get downhearted when you think about what's going on in our culture because God is sitting on his throne. He knows exactly what he's doing. But I really believe that God wants to raise up some people that understand a little bit more of the issue and not only understand the issue, but sense the burden of this issue so much that they want to do something about it. Goes on to say, humanism is easily defined. I read this, I thought it was pretty interesting. It is a man-made attempt to elevate man above God. And the well-known German humanist philosopher, George Hegel, he said this, man's laws are superior to God's laws. It is the idea that man is supreme over God. As far back as the Garden of Eden, when Satan persuaded Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, the first attempt was made to elevate humans above God. Satan, of course, spoke to Eve. For God does not know, for, for God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing both good and evil. Genesis 3, verse number 5. What a deception. In other words, Satan was telling Eve she would know what is right and wrong. And should we, she would be independent of God then, doing nothing but what she wanted to do, knowing that she was the one that was going to choose what is right and what is wrong. I want to take you back to the scriptures and give you a warning that Paul gave to the church at Colossae. And we're thinking about that particular time in which this was written was pre-Christianity, if you would. Uh, It was not too far after the cross of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was around 33 years old when he was called of God. Jesus Christ died, of course, and rose again, 33 years old or there, went back to heaven. He picked another young man about the same age to hand the baton to, to say, Apostle Paul, I'm going to use you. And I'm going to use you to be a passionate person that will tell the truth and take this gospel uh, of Jesus Christ to these nations, first of all, uh, to Jerusalem, and then to Judea, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And that is the gospel of Christ. And by the way, when Grace Baptist Church gets away from doing that, we've gotten away from everything. Praise the Lord for our missionaries. We're going to talk about them in just a little bit in the meeting. But what an awesome understanding that in the second chapter of Colossians, the Apostle Paul took time to share with people, first of all, and if you're taking notes, I wrote down, first of all, the spiritual passion is mentioned in verses 1 through 3. I'm so thankful for a young man that would read the scriptures for me this morning and Thank you so much, Alex, for doing that and be willing to do that at your age. And I really, truly wish somebody would have given me an opportunity to do that when I was your age. Because there's nothing greater that you could ever do than read the scriptures to the congregation. As I think of these verses in verse number one, you can see the passion and the spiritual passion that is in the Apostle Paul In verse number one of chapter two, he says, For I would that you knew what conflict I I have for you. And it's a very personal thing. That word conflict, if you could circle that word conflict, because really the word conflict in the old English means 
in the New English, if you would, concern. And so if we were to really read it in the right way, it would say, for I would that you knew what great concern I have for you. He is actually coming with an incredible amount of passion and love as an older man now, and it's probably well into his 60s. He is saying, I hope you would know how much concern that I have for you. In fact, I'm so concerned over you that I'm conflicted within my heart over this whole issue, and I cannot sleep. Have any of you been conflicted over your children and said, I cannot believe what they're doing? I hope that God protects them in the situation, if you think of a woman and how that she wakes up in the middle of the night knowing that her son is someplace in the deserts in Saudi Arabia and wondering if her boy is okay and she slips out of her bed and she gets onto her knees because inside she's so conflicted and so concerned about her boy that God would protect him while he's over there. It's the same kind of concern and passion, spiritual passion that Paul had For the people of Colossae, what an incredible passion that he had. You may have had that passion for somebody. You may have been woken up in the middle of the night with tears and praying for someone. Maybe you've had a child go astray. Maybe you've had a loved one that was on the verge of making a bad mistake. Maybe it was you. Maybe you were the one that you were concerned about, that you were going to make another poor decision, and you were saying, God, help me so I don't make a a mess of this. Help me not to make, and you were so conflicted within your heart, and you were so concerned. That's the word here that's being used. But he goes on further, and understanding the spiritual passion, he goes on to say, I have for you, for them at Laodicea, but also for as many of you that have not seen me in the flesh. And so he's not talking to the Colossi, he's talking about those at Laodicea also. We know that the church of Laodicea is mentioned in Revelation, and we know that perhaps we could apply this to our day, and and, and maybe we have a pre-Christian culture at this particular letter, but maybe we have a post-Christian nation that needs to hear this now, to beware... And there are people that are concerned about you. They're conflicted and they're concerned in their heart over you. Dear Christian friend, do you know that there are people that love you and they'll love you to death? They cry over you. They mourn over you. That you would make the right decision. Wake up, dear friend. There are people that love you and care for you. And right now, Satan is whispering in in your ear at times. No one loves you and no one is concerned about you. But there are people that are praying for you when you don't even realize it. Some older people say, I don't really believe that I can be used of God anymore. Oh, yes, you can. Get that church directory out and look at those pictures. Weep over those families. Fathers, please, when you make decisions... Don't base it on speculation. Because speculation will ruin you. It's interesting as he's thinking here, he goes on in verse number two, that their hearts might be comforted. That word comforted means encouraged or being knit together in love. And that love really is the basis of all of this, isn't it? And unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so he's basically giving us the understanding 
that we have everything in Christ. We don't just have knowledge. We have not just gnoske, we have epigenoske. We have that prefix is full, complete knowledge in Jesus Christ. In these institutions that are telling us that they need to remove God from the institution is lying to us. All you're getting then is philosophy and speculation. You have no absolutes. This was John Dewey's desire, was to convey that there are no absolutes, and there is absolutes. There are certainties, and I want to live my life with the certainties. But there are people that pray for you. Look at the spiritual passion in chapter 1, if you could, with me just for a moment. Look at verse number 8. The Apostle Paul is writing here, who also declared unto, unto us your love in the Spirit. Of course, he's talking about Epiphras, a name we don't really use these days. I don't know if there's any Epiphrases here. If you had a restaurant, you wouldn't call it Epiphrases, you know. But Epiphras was a fellow servant, a faithful minister. But he goes on to say in verse number 9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord, unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering, with joyfulness. What beautiful words. You say, I really don't know how to pray for my son. Pray this way for him. Take it out. Take a picture of it on your phone and blow it up and look at it and take it and get on your knees and and say, God, would you please help my daughter? Help her this way to know your will and plead with God. And you know what? He will hear you and he will answer your prayer every single time. I remember years ago, I was in the office. It was a Saturday morning. We had men's prayer breakfast. We're having it coming up this Saturday, by the way, 9 o'clock. We pray together as men. And I got to pray with certain men during that time. Still do. I'll say, hey, you want to pray together? And so we'll go in my office and get on, my, on our knees. And I got on my knees and I, I always say, why don't you pray first and I'll close. Pretty soon I, I, I heard this noise. You ever hear... A, a dog kind of whimpering, kind of, and can't catch its breath. It's kind of, and that was this man. And the tears began to flow. Some of you probably in this room would probably call him uneducated. But he had a passion and a spiritual desire to see his children walk with God. And he was weeping and wailing and crying out to God over his children. I just stared at him. He said, oh, what a blessing. I know God's going to answer his prayers. And God did. You know, through Facebook, you see a lot of things. And his kids are doing pretty good. 20 years ago, I seen him weeping over his children. And now his won't be long and his children, his children are going to have children. 
I'm getting old. But as we think about this, we have an understanding of the spiritual passion in verses 1 through 3. But I want to look at verses 4 through 7 because we have spiritual progress. In all of this, his desire is that we would walk and grow. My desire is that you would grow in the Lord, dear friend. I'm a slow learner. Did you know that I'm just finishing up my master's degree at 60 years old? You're supposed to do that when you're 24. I'm a slow learner. But that's okay. You know, I was thinking about that song. That song came to my mind. Couldn't help but think about Ron Hamilton during the last month or so. Thank you for picking that song this morning. I've been singing it, whistling it, humming it. It's a beautiful song. Oh, rejoice in the Lord, for he makes no mistakes. You see, sometimes people think that all the things that happen to them are all happening because God doesn't like them or whatever. No, God loves you. If he didn't like you, he'd eliminate you. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty simple. If he loves you, you know, many of you know that I broke my two fingers. They don't bend right. Still don't work right. Try to grab a bag of peanuts. I can only grab a few out of there at a time. I have to use this hand. <laughs> I was going to say M&M's, but I can't have any sugar. Then I have my back issue. You know, when you say, Lord, could you please make me into what you want me to be? Do you really mean that? Do you say, I surrender all. Here I am, Lord. Do whatever you choose. Do you really mean that? Because if you do, he will answer your prayer. Because he's preparing for you a place, but he's also preparing you for that place. And sometimes the preparation of you and me take a whole lot longer than the place we're going. And I'm so thankful that Christianity is a journey and then there's new beginnings and new weeks and new months and new times where we have the Lord's Supper and new beginnings where we can just get refreshed and renewed and revived and renewed in our hearts. But I want you to see this. It's pretty interesting because the progression is necessary. Verse number four, just through seven. And this I say, a city man should beguile you so he was concerned that any man would beguile you with enticing words. That word beguile means to dilute you. Now, I don't like uh, Pepsi with water. If you half Pepsi and half water, would you like that? It's um, I don't know how else to explain it. That word beguile means half-truth or diluted, watered down. Um, God didn't really say that. Oh, yes, God did say that. You know? Um, And so he says, I'm concerned here, lest any man should give you a half-truth with his words. For... Though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit. So now he's talking about not being with them. Like he said in verse number one, 
joying and beholding your order. That's your step. You're walking in step like military term. And the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And so he's rejoicing in that, that they, whether he's there with them or whether he isn't, that they're walking in step and they're walking with the Lord in order. But they're being steadfast. And I think that our theme this year was proper, uh, properly picked. I think next year's is too. And I'm excited about what God is doing at Grace Baptist. And we'll talk about it just a minute in the business meeting. But I see what's interesting in this verse because he's saying in verse number five then, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, joining and beholding your order and steadfastness in your, in your faith. As you have therefore received Christ, that's, that's the first step, as you receive Christ. Then you start walking in him. Then you're rooted and you're built up in him and then you're established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And in these verses, I really believe he's talking about spiritual progression. Let me just stop there for a moment and say that it doesn't automatically happen. It would be kind of nice if it did. You know, I was thinking about our garden. Um, I shouldn't say it's our garden. It's Tammy's garden. I have done no work in that thing. This year, she has worked endlessly. Uh, to provide for my needs, plus all of the church, all, all of I mean, I mean, all of the the whole house needs and the mowing and everything else. But that guard is doing so well. But we didn't just put the seeds in and just say, "Oh well." You know, sometimes we think, you know, well, I led them to Christ. I don't know where they're at now. Did you ever think they might need a little love, a little water, a little care? little time, a little bit of your resources? Did it ever occur to you that that one soul that God brought your way, that you led to him, is not furthering on because of your care for that individual? You see, I really believe that God saves people. I know he does instantaneously. But I believe there is a progression that happens and we grow in him. And it happens because of spiritual disciplines. It happens because we're in his word and we're in prayer and we're around other Christians. I always think about how that you ought to keep your prayer life consistent. But you ought to have your devotions alone. You can write that down. That's just a perhaps personal advice that I would give someone. First of all, to keep your prayer life consistent and then to keep your devotions alone. But then I would also say memorize Scripture. And if you've already memorized Scripture, go back over them again. That would be three things. And then the fourth thing would be hang around people that do the first three things. (laughs) That's just a small practical advice as far as progress in the Lord, but I have to close with this. And this was really my thought in the area of message, the vanity of speculation. Verse number 9, let's go to verse number 8. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit and the traditions of men after the rudiments or the earthly principles of the world and not after Christ. For in him dwell all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and for you. 
you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. I would say that verses 1 through 3, you're dealing with spiritual passion. Verses 4 through 7, you're dealing with spiritual progress. But verses 8 to 10, you're dealing with a spiritual promise. And I use a capital S every time I use the word spiritual. The spiritual promise of God that he said that he would save you and that he would keep you and that he would hold you. I've had practice, so okay. I trusted Jesus Christ at the age of seven, 1968. He's never let me down. 1967, it was Mayberry. It was walk to the post office and just pick up your mail at the age of five. It was walk to school. It was go to the park where they put water in the wintertime and they would freeze it so you could ice skate there. It was a completely different world than it is today. I'm 60. God's never let me down. But I'm going to give you an illustration in closing and let you know that the promise is still with me that he would save me and he would be with me, never let me go. I cleave unto that promise no matter how deep the water gets, no matter how hot the flames get, no matter how difficult life gets, He will never leave you or forsake you. When I was younger, I memorized Psalm 121. And the Spanish-speaking people can come right on as if they're coming up. I want this place to be filled and they can listen to the last illustration here. Come right on in, folks. But you know, when you go into surgery, you really can't be very modest. You just got to accept those gowns. You know what I'm talking about. Not an easy thing, but something that needs to happen. Put me on a table. They said, we're going to put you on this inflatable thing. I don't know if you've ever seen those. You probably know what I'm talking about. Uh, Jeanette's. An anesthesiologist, I wish you would have been mine. Uh, mine came in and said, we're going to take you into a room pretty soon and we're going to give you something to make you feel really happy. You're going to feel really good and then we're going to tell you to think about going someplace like a beach, someplace. I was just thinking about maybe Culver's, that's all I know. But I'm laying there on this plastic thing. They put me over on this inflatable thing. They blew it up so that when I get to the surgery table, they can just flap me over onto the table. So they took me down this cool hallway, and then they asked me, do you want a warm blanket? Did they ever ask that to you when you're, do you want a warm blanket? You know, a really ice-cold blanket wouldn't feel really good right now, so I think I would want one if it's warm. So they did. They gave me a warm blanket, and I was able to go into the room and, they put my head at a certain place, and the room was full of students. Uh, people that were going to watch, you know, there was, must have been a dozen people, probably total. The, sta- the same anesthesiologist came over 
took my arm and she said, Is it, we're going to go ahead and give this to you now. Is it okay, Dean? You're, you're ready? And I says, yeah, I'm ready. Just go ahead. And you know, when I was a young man, I memorized Psalm 121. And a verse came to my mind in Psalm 121. It says, God is thy keeper. He is the shade upon thy right hand. Th- that verse came to my mind as if God spoke it. I didn't hear it in the room. It was in my heart. He brought it from here to here, just that quick. And I started thinking about that verse. The Lord is thy keeper. He is the shade upon thy right hand. And I noticed she had a hold of my left arm. I noticed the doctors were all over here. The students were all over here. But there was nobody on my right side. Do you know why there was nobody there? Because there was already somebody there. He was the shade upon my right hand. That's the promise of our God. He will be with you. And He will take care of you. Listen. With all of the theories out there, please, beware. Beware lest your desire for knowledge and your desire for earthly, worldly wisdom pulls you and tugs you so that you think you'll be smarter if you have more degrees or whatever than the next person. Be careful because you know who God uses? Real, honest, and humble people. That's who He uses. And He wants to use you. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, Pastor Howell, I needed that message. There's a lot going on in the world system today. There's a lot going on and sometimes I'm so caught up into it that I forget to pray. I forget those spiritual disciplines and I'm not where I need to be spiritually right now and I know I didn't. I want God to speak to me. I want to get my relationship with God where it should be. And so would you, would you please pray for me? I'm saved, but I need your prayers. Is there anyone like that? Just lift up your hand and put it back down again. Pastor, would you pray for me? Thank you, thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you. What a blessing. Maybe you just need to do some business with God this morning. If you do, the altar will be open for you. You can come. But maybe you're here this morning and still you haven't given your heart to Jesus. That's the first thing you give him. You can go to a church, but it doesn't do really any good until you've given your heart to Jesus. Maybe this morning you want to do that. We want to help you. If you're a woman and you need to be saved, we'll show you from the scriptures how you can know for sure you're going to heaven. If you're a man, we'll have a man show you how you can know for sure you're going to heaven. Maybe I ask the question, do you know for sure you're going to heaven today? Say, Pastor Howell, I don't know for sure. Would you please have someone show me? Now, I won't point you out, but I'll give you an opportunity to come forward. But maybe there'd be someone this morning to say, I need Jesus. I've been thinking about this a long time. And I need to give my heart to Jesus. Is there anyone like that this morning? Just lift up your hand, put it back down again. Say, Pastor, pray for me. I still have not accepted Christ, but I need to. Is there anyone? Just lift it up and put it back down. Then this message was given to me for the Christian. So, dear Christian, if you need to come, why don't you come this morning? With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just stand where you are? We're going to have an invitation. I'm going to pray, and as soon as I'm done, the invitation will begin. 
Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide in this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.